0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Floor Nine. I am your host, Scott Eltresen. With me, as always, is my co-host, Adam Simon, Adam, how's it going?
1: Doing swell.
0: What's the latest on your car? Summer is approaching. Are you are you wheeling the tire? Are you you oiling the tires? Are you spinning the tires? What are you doing in the car? It's pretty new. It does
1: it does not need it does not need uh, need service. It's pretty new still. Um, All right. I am excited to 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 drive to the beach because as any New Yorker knows, getting to the beach in New York without a car is possible, but it is really annoying. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to have an easier way to get to the beach. so. Yeah, it's always it's
0: always interesting when you're sitting there with a towel flip flops towards and it's like sitting on the subway. It's like mm. it, it's <laughs> just a little yeah. dirty. <laughs> it's it's not but, ideal. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, well, that's exciting. I'm, I'm excited for you. Later on in this week's episode, we are speaking with Joshua Locock for an in-depth discussion on the media bargaining code, which has been the cause of all the recent news around Facebook, Google uh, and Australia. So definitely stick around for that conversation. But Adam, speaking of news, let's dive into some of the hottest stories of the week, starting with Google's late night announcement from the Wall Street Journal. Google plans to stop selling ads based on individuals browsing across multiple websites, a change that has hastened the upheaval in the digital advertising industry. So, Adam, what what does this mean? Uh, what 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 is happening with this announcement?
1: So, this is actually something that Google has publicly disclosed uh, before. We've known about this that that this was coming uh, in the next couple of years um, for a while. Uh, the new update is that they will also not be developing their own technology to replace third-party cookies, nor will they be natively supporting any of these sort of things that have been developed in that space. Um, Mm -hmm. They they outlined a little bit more about what their approach is going to be for for targeting using using Google's ad network. Um, And that is a cohort-based targeting where they're going to be using machine learning models to identify users um, across, obviously, Google properties, but but most importantly, on device in in the Chrome browser. Um, And uh, target people uh, using using that machine learning uh, mm-hmm. created cohort that is going to be sort of tied to their Google account and also their their logged in a session on Chrome across devices. Um, so they say it's going to be 95% as effective, which, you know, we have no reason to doubt them at this point, and uh, right. that it will also, um, you know, preserve user privacy in a little bit of a better way. There's a little asterisk there. It, it, it does do that to some extent, but it also introduces some new privacy questions. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, this is Obviously, you know, partially a response to both changing consumer opinions about privacy and tracking, and also uh, you know the threat of, of regulation. Um, so they're they're getting out ahead of, of all of that with with something that probably will appease the regulators um, and, right. and to some extent the consumers um, until maybe some of these other uh, caveats around uh, privacy <laughs> start to rear their, their heads.
0: <laughs> but but in general, while this is a big announcement, especially for for our industry. It does seem like Google, to your point, already has a solution in place that is going to be uh, highly effective, and it's just going to be more of a change in maybe how we are buying, but the end goal is still going to be the same. Uh, and and how we're yeah, playing. It, and that is kind it, of the message that's being delivered.
1: Yeah, it might actually even be be better in some ways, right? Because it is going to be a little uh, more advanced uh, version of of targeting con- those cohorts contextually. You know, I think this it lines up nicely with one of our outlook trends this year: the reinvention of social context, which was looking about looking at this growing trend towards targeting folks on social networks contextually rather than on an individual data-driven basis and this is really doing something similar um you know outside of social networks in <clears throat> not just in search but also you know with display ads on uh, on on publisher sites and things like that so really what is happening is that because of of you know Public pressure, regulatory pressure. Google and Apple are both making changes in this direction away from third party tracking and, and third party cookies. And that is also then forcing Facebook, obviously, as someone who rides on top of those mobile platforms to, uh, to sort of follow in their, in their wake. Um, and obviously Google and Facebook being the two biggest digital advertising platforms. Um, it, th- this is just the reality of where the market is going. And I think there are, there are good solutions for brands and advertisers uh that will continue to exist um and uh it's just an evolution uh there are i think the larger thing and the larger existential concern is that it really does um improve the position of the largest folks who own first party data which would be Google Apple and Facebook um at the expense of smaller players um so you know i think this is uh, in enhanced privacy often entrenches uh, the largest players and that is sort of what's happening here. And that is uh, you know something that we obviously are also watching and and uh, and keeping an eye on. but um, you know again, it, this isn't a I wouldn't say I, I, everything has trade-offs and this is this is a move in the in a direction that will um, again appe- likely appease regulators and probably most of the public as well
0: right. Well, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on the story and and, uh, tracking how it develops. But for any of our listeners, feel free to reach out to us directly if you're looking for more information uh, or directly to anybody on your UM team uh, to help you kind of distill this information down. So uh, next up, we have an announcement from Twitter, and that is Twitter Spaces has arrived on Android ahead of Clubhouse, uh, which seems to be the main competitor in this social audio um, space coming back to my my bull theory here on on twitter spaces adam and twitter in general uh you know they're shipping product. we we, we have something tangible to look at <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah i mean twitter has been rolling spaces out very aggressively and i think hitting android makes a lot of sense because it is someplace that yep. clubhouse is not um so uh, a really easy way for them to capture users before clubhouse even launches on android um and uh yeah it it's it's expanding every week it seems like more people are getting access every week so i would say that you know in the next couple of months it'll be open to everybody and then we can start yep. having conversations about uh and looking at you know where the opportunities are for brands in those spaces yep. obviously right now you can partner with somebody who has access to twitter spaces or clubhouse uh as an influencer uh to to integrate um that's always the the fastest way into these new platforms but yep. um as it opens to everybody that will probably include brand accounts as well so you will be able to start hosting uh these audio conversations from your brand accounts in the coming months
0: yep absolutely uh and if you're looking for more information just on clubhouse and uh, twitter spaces uh definitely go check out our 100th episode where we had uh, a full discussion uh breaking down the twitter bull case versus clubhouse um notably though adam we haven't really seen anything from instagram uh, in the social audio space. Most recently, Instagram launched live rooms for live broadcasts up to four creators, but not so much anything in the audio space. It seems like they're starting to develop or talk about doing something, but I wonder if Instagram is going to be the proper place to even host any audio, uh, given (laughs) the fact that they are such a visual platform.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've heard that Facebook is working on a social audio product, which is no surprise. Um, Maybe it goes into Instagram and as part of these live rooms just without video, uh, Mm. you know, these live rooms are um, something that is kind of like a public version of house party. What we have seen is that live video is obviously useful in some contexts. But it is uh, less accessible, less people are going to do it than live audio, probably. My, my guess is that Facebook has not decided the right way into live audio yet. Yeah, and mm-hmm. who knows if it goes into Instagram or into the, the Facebook Blue app or, or where. Uh, or it gets shoved into WhatsApp for some reason. You never know. Uh, I feel like there's a, a lot of, uh, it could show up in Messenger. They've, they've put, mm-hmm. you know, stories in Messenger. And that didn't seem to entirely make sense. So, But I think we um, are bullish on the on Twitter spaces as a clubhouse competitor and yeah. we'll see um, what happens yeah. with, with with others.
0: Yes, it'll be interesting to see how Facebook thinks about social audio uh, across its networks of different products um, mo- moving forward. Uh, and our last bit of news comes from Square. Square has announced on Monday evening that its banking subsidiary, Square Financial Services, has officially started operations. So Square now has a bank on top of all of their other products out there. Uh, we know from Square Reader to Cash App. Uh, and it seems like in general, they're just starting to verticalize in the financial service industry. And that seems to be a trend that we're starting to see across this space in general is uh, that verticalization for the full financial stack.
1: Yeah, this is definitely a trend that that uh, folks, whether it's on the B2B side or the consumer side of, of finance, are, are starting to vertically integrate. Um, a lot of companies are doing it by white labeling services from other companies. Um, so a, a, mm-hmm. an example there would be what Robinhood did when they wanted to add cash management to their app. They, they white labeled a service from a, a different bank uh, so that they didn't have to go through the regulatory approval process of starting their own bank, which, as you might imagine, is complicated. Um, but Yep. Square is is taking that more complicated path, probably because they see that that's uh, you know a place that they can add value and, and innovate um, and yep. uh, provide more services for for the small businesses that run on their platform.
0: Absolutely. Well, that is going to wrap up this week's news. And next up, we are going to hop into our conversation with Joshua Locock to discuss the median bargaining code uh, and all its implications for Google, Facebook, and Australia. Listeners, welcome to the main conversation of this week's episode. With us is Joshua Locock back again. So, Joshua, welcome back to Floor Nine.
2: G'day, Scott. It's great to be back, mate. Oh, it's glad to have you
0: back. And um I think we're super excited to be talking about some news that's really coming out of your your home turf down in uh, Australia. What's going on with Facebook and and Google and I mean, Adam, we've talked about this a little bit in the in the news the past 2 weeks, but we thought we will bring on an expert to really kind of dive deep into uh what's going on there. So to so just like set the stage can you give us a little background around this media bargaining code that is essentially at the core of all of the news that has been coming around Australia, Facebook, and Google?
2: Oh man, like crikey, don't know where to start. No, seriously, <laughs> if I don't if I don't ham up my Australian accent. Look, it's a it's a very serious topic and very interesting. And there's a couple of things that sort of form part of it. So the Australian New Media Bargaining Code looks to basically enforce or encourage platforms, namely Google and Facebook, who explicitly applies to to pay for news content. Uh, it's somewhat incorrectly described as a link tax. We should talk about that a little bit later. And it's part of an overall reform of the Australian media landscape and the digital media landscape that the government's got underway. There's also a separate piece of legislation, which will probably come up for discussion in a future podcast. There's a review also going underway in Australia of the Privacy Act.
0: What is this media bargaining code trying to do? From from my understanding, it seemed like it was a, an attempt to better fund journalism or, or news organizations in australia specifically is that like the the main goal of this code that is being introduced with all this all this legislation
2: it really depends on who you talk to if you talk to the australian government and news organizations it is designed to better fund and protect news and news gathering and australia has a couple of regulations that sort of focus on that there's a thing called ping the public interest news gathering uh grant system as well in australia Uh, If you talk to the platforms, they see it purely as attacks, targeting Google and Facebook and punishing them for allowing people to share news on the platforms. And they would counter that they drive traffic to news sites as well.
0: Joshua, what do you think it is?
2: (laughs) My sort of take on it all of it is we absolutely need to step back from the emotional issues. There's sort of two big debates going on Globally. One is antitrust regulation and any competitive and monopoly behavior accusations against major platforms. And so you could take the path that that regulation is really an indirect antitrust move on US companies where Australian regulatory frameworks really aren't going to change the global structure of the Googles and Facebooks of the world. So that's path one. Path two is you could look at it as on the basis that the news industry is immensely challenged at the moment there's a term news deserts there's whole states in the us that don't have newspapers at all anymore there's been reviews in the uk most famously the can cross review which looked at the inability of advertising to even fund journalism anymore and they called out that there was a market failure and so i think you've actually got two issues which is you've got antitrust issues and governments need to act you absolutely have the risk and consequence of the failure of advertising in the market to support journalism. We need to protect and fund journalism. Google and Facebook are caught in the crosshairs of that dilemma.
1: I, yeah, I think that's a good way to separate those things that they're sort of being conflated. And they, they both, they're, they're also, I think, trying to do both things with one, one piece of leg- legislation. How successful do you think that Sort of where things are are netting out in Australia. How successful do you think that that is at achieving either one of those goals?
2: I don't think it's successful in achieving the antitrust goals that anyone mm-hmm. sets out to do. That you know, yep. antitrust regulation is the only way to really address those issues. I think it does go part of the way to addressing concerns about journalism, notwithstanding questions about where the money that gets paid to the news organizations go There's some nuances in the code and some of the amendments that went through in the 11th hour, which means that the platforms, again Google and Facebook because we might as well name them uh, can directly negotiate terms independent of the code and have that sort of be established as their you know bargaining framework. And my concern with that is it leaves journalism still subject to the vagaries of the largesse of large corporations. And doesn't protect them ongoing and on a long-term basis. Because at the end of the day, while Google and Facebook are immensely profitable, they're accountable to shareholders. And if shareholders come back and say, we don't want you to do this, they would stop. Or we've also seen, you know, most painfully, the platforms struggle with misinformation and accusations of bias. And how do you know they're doing deals with quality news organizations and not supporting someone who? Pro, you know, pushers and proponents of misinformation simply because Google and Facebook don't want to look politically biased.
1: I think I would agree that as an antitrust thing, there are it's it's not really successful, um, and and I think that's the question. That's the thing that for me has really bothered me about this is. I, I totally agree that we need to figure out how to how to create and sustain news organizations that exist right now but also the ones we lost and like local news organizations as you said there's a whole lot of uh, you know news deserts in in the US and in other parts of the world that that need uh, need, to replanting, as it were. Um, but why should we not then be a little bit more direct about that, solving that problem and tax tech companies and put that money directly into news? And I think there is some transfer of, of money that's happening because of these deals, but there's no accountability to it. It could just go literally you know, into, into shareholders. It could be paid out as dividends to shareholders, and shareholders would love that, but it's not really solving the problem of, of making news sustainable um, and it's certainly not solving the problem of of you know fostering news in places where it doesn't already exist where there is not you know currently a large news organization operating. those are the concerns that I have looking at at sort of where this is netting out
2: yeah and I think like that's you know that's a fair comment and that's what critics of the code call out and I I guess that gets into you know we've got this interesting dilemma if you compare, The Australian media landscape to the one in the UK, to Canada, to the US, Australia does have government-funded public broadcasters. We don't have government-funded public newspapers, but we have government-funded public broadcasters. And so there's an acceptance that the government can play a role in that. It comes up for criticism, but there's acceptance they can play the role. The UK with the BBC very much follows that model as well. And to some extent, you have that in Canada. I think the dilemma that we have, like everybody's looking for a precedent globally and that's one of the big call-outs on the Australian decision, which is the UK came out behind it saying they should you know, follow Australia's lead. Canada's proposing similar legislation. There's this week in the US, a call now for the US to develop something similar. We categorically do need to solve the issue of where that money goes and what it funds and how you support journalism. And there is also the real question of and i'm categorically firm believer in journalism and media but what what does funding actually mean what are you funding because the panacea of reopening a local newspaper is probably unlikely and when you've got services like patch and the like you've got to go okay what does funding local journalism truly mean and how do you ensure it gets access to Local community who needs to see it and support it, right?
1: And I, I think I think that that's a great point because what we don't want to do is just dig up the old business models and and resuscitate them through taxes. When maybe the right thing to do is to use that money to encourage sort of entrepreneurship in developing new business models around local news, because maybe someone will find a way that we can do it without the taxes right <laughs> like like i think there's a lot of m- movement and interest there and i think you know it could just be that we're in a weird uh, time right now, and that five years from now, it's really obvious how how we support news, and it's by paying for it directly. And there's our, there's enough uh, sort of momentum towards that, and, and 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 participation in that by consumers. That you know, in a lot of places, we we do start to have local news again, but it's coming from uh, things like Patch or from independent people writing Substacks, or, or I don't know, from payments, a lot of different or, places, yeah, lots of
2: or different or micro
1: payments, or 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 you know those. Um, uh, yeah, that like an all you can eat subscription that is going to trickle down to uh, to contribute some things to local to more local providers. There's a lot of options there. So yeah, I would 100% agree that the government being too prescriptive in how the money should be spent is also a bad thing. Um, There'd be some oversight that it's not that it is actually being invested in journalism again and in 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 some way. but I, but, yes, governments do tend to be uh, not very good at uh, writing laws that don't that think through all of those unintended consequences. Um, And I'd much rather see uh, you know, reinvention and entrepreneurship than uh, just forcing old business models into the future. I agree.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: the The one thing I just wanted to clarify as we're kind of going through this conversation is this idea of a link tax. Like, like, what exactly does that mean in the world of like the internet? Like, like how is that being described? Because Joshua, you were saying at the beginning that it's kind of being misconstrued this, you know, code as a link tax, but like, what exactly is a link tax?
2: So like how does that work? Yeah. So the whole nature of the internet is you can link to anyone freely without consequence, without needing permission. And you don't have to compensate someone for linking backwards and forwards to their content. So that's, the way the internet's being constructed and the way, you know, Google and Facebook position the Australian regulation was that it was a link tax and that anyone could be then liable for a government law saying, well, now, if you want to link to anyone, you know, right now it's news and news organizations are saying, well, we have to pay to link to them. What's to stop the legislation getting broader and saying, well, if, you know, floor nine wants to link to a newspaper and it's podcast it's going to have to pay as well they tried to catastrophize the issue and make it seem wild and out of control the bit that we need to sort of re-examine a little bit on the internet is it's not a choice whether you participate in being on google and facebook and critics of the australian regulation and to get a little bit technical uh If you want to be excluded from Google search, you can put something called a robots.txt file on your website and Google won't index you. And you go, great, I won't be indexed by Google. Opting out of being visible on Google isn't really a commercial choice. It's like saying you can opt out of being on LinkedIn, but still try and get a white collar job. It's just not possible. And the other thing on that is unless all news organizations move on mass, you're actually Disenfranchising your business. I think the other bit that needs to be discussed on this concept of a link tax is actually the behaviors of the platforms and notably Google. When Google surfaces content, it surfaces an abstract and quite a significant abstract. So it's not a search result which, you know, type in floor nine and go, hey, here's a link to the podcast. It's here's the first eight lines of the story in Google News. And news organizations claim that that actually devalues their property because people go in there, see the story and elect not to go through. So Google gets value keeping people on the platform versus people going off the Google platform and everywhere. But a link tax is ostensibly people paying for news. There's just so much nuance. ill describes the issues at play, particularly for news organizations. And I would say broadly for publishers everywhere.
0: It is interesting that it's only right now looking at Google and Facebook. Correct. Not looking at, let's say, like a Pinterest. Yeah, it wasn't or, looking at
2: Twitter or TikTok or any of or those.
0: And Any other ones of those, uh, of like the, you know, Twitter especially, the huge. You know, like, there's a lot of linkage going on there. Any particular reason why we think that might have been the case?
2: I, I think it gets back to what I was saying before, which is Twitter provides links to content. It doesn't provide extracts or abstracts of content. And so aside from the antitrust monopoly issues, which I still think are baked into this whole issue, right? the fact that if you share a link on Twitter, it is just the link itself and the, like a little miniature version of, you know, here's the headline and this is what the website looks like. So, you know, you can trust clicking on it versus Google and Facebook, which show a lot more content.
1: Is, is the card in Twitter really less significant than what's in
2: Facebook, though? I would argue it is because there's sort of two ways it plays out, which is on Twitter, you and I sharing information, the card is much more reduced. So Twitter's low if you're sort of high, medium, low, Twitter's lower, Facebook's medium, Google's high.
1: Yeah, no, I can see it. It, it really does just – it shows an image, the like headline image, uh, the header it's image. It's no different to sort the of the experience headline. you get
2: if someone shares you a, a link on your mobile phone.
1: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, the interesting thing about the argument around showing content, though, that I think is just conveniently forgotten in this argument is that even on Facebook, the – the publishers control what that summary of the article that shows in Facebook says that is all stuff that you put in the, the header content of, of the URL. Um, and they can they 100% control that. So if they wanted that summary not to show up, they could remove it. It would hurt their click through rates, which is why they don't do it, but they could remove
2: it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like what would have happened if Facebook just officially just said, you know what? No, like we're, we're just going to cut off all of the, news organizations from Australia that can't be shared on our platform.
2: I've given this a lot of thought and actually happy to share my perspective with you all and with the listeners, which is because Google threatened the same thing as well. Google said, look, if this goes through, we're going to withdraw. And then Google actually did a deal, you know, days before the regulations passed. And if you followed the whole news story, when Google said, I will pull out of Australia... Microsoft is like, hey, we're Bing, we're here, we'll be ready to step in. And there's a part, I think, that gets lost in all of the debate, which is search is a frictionless service. So if if I use Bing and you use Google and someone else uses DuckDuckGo, no one really knows, right? The experiences are very, very similar and there's no network effect or value. And if Google switched off anywhere in the world tomorrow. And I used to live in China and was there when Google switched off there. It makes headlines, but you can switch to another search engine and get on with your life. And so it actually hurts the search engine more profoundly. Whereas Facebook is, and social media is a highly friction-based service, and it works on the network effects. And I think that's what regulators forgot in these discussions, which is Google can never walk away from a market because people would just switch to an alternative and it might actually be hard for them to get share back because once you default to using bing you're like man i'm happy now it works the same why should i go back
1: it's fine 90 percent of the time you just don't if they show up again a month later you've already forgotten
2: yeah but facebook and facebook could actually do what it did in australia because by and large australians or any country the users of the, that population aren't just going to abandon the platform based on that decision. And despite boycott Facebook trending, it never actually translates into action. So the network effects make those platform makes Facebook and Twitter and others highly sticky and impervious to those regulations. I think what Facebook did, though, was overplayed its hand a little bit, and it clearly antagonized regulators everywhere in the world. And that was, I mean, one of the words that, uh, from one of my favorite TV series of all time is, that was a courageous decision.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you think the reason that Facebook backed down is they were afraid that that would increase regulatory action against them, in maybe not just in Australia, but in other parts of the world?
2: If you watched and read all the op-eds that were popping up in Europe, they were waving the red flag in a pool.
1: Interesting.
0: I do want to shift the conversation uh, to think about the impact this has then on brands and advertisers. So obviously there's a lot going on from like a consumer perspective, you know, in the news and journalism, you know, in the news and journalism industry, but as marketers, as brands, as advertisers, you know what are some of the learnings or takeaways that we should be thinking about from this recent kind of reg- legislation going on in Australia and then you know potential future conversations that'll happen in different parts of the globe
2: yeah there's there's a couple of things which is and there's some takeaways from uh, Australia so we saw website traffic on news sites fall dramatically after you know 20 to 40% depending on who you read and listen to and so the immediate thing is, if, if and when these things happen in the rest of the world, and it's more likely when, and if you get to this tipping point, there is going to be impact on media delivery as the game of brinkmanship plays out, because the ability of publishers to serve your ads is going to suffer as a result. The other thing that happened, which most people outside of Australia wouldn't have noted, is there were calls for all advertisers to boycott Facebook in protest. And we've lived through a Facebook boycott here in the you know US recently, so that places an impact on advertisers. I think the other one that you know is, and it's going to just become part of this ongoing debate, which is, well, what are advertisers doing to support news organisations, and are they uh, investing the appropriate budget? Are they using brand safety either as an excuse to avoid news, or are they inadvertently? avoiding news because their brand safety controls are you know, too stringent or too strong. So I think there will be a call to action of what are advertisers doing. There's actually an initiative, and I believe it's being led by the Boston Globe uh, and some others called protectourpress.org. And what that is, is it's seeking both members of the public and advertisers and agencies and brands to make a pledge to either subscribe to news content, like commit to spending 20% of your advertising or programmatic advertising budget on news or to fund journalism. And it nicely loops back around to something else that's very close to my heart, which is the media responsibility principles, which is we need to wake up to the fact that advertising funds content It's not just a means of reaching an audience. And brands need to think about ensuring that where they spend their money doesn't cause harm to society and actually benefit society as a whole. So I think we're up to a meaningful debate on what advertising funds, how we're supporting journalism, whether that's news organizations or, Adam, to your point, entrepreneurial news initiatives. But we need to value the importance of the press and get behind it. And if you look at all the ills that we've had in democracy in the US and everywhere else in the world, misinformation around the COVID-19 pandemic, hand on heart would bet that 90% of that is because we don't do enough to support quality journalism anymore. An informed debate is missing.
0: So think about what happened. Are advertisers spending too much on Facebook and Google and these other platforms and maybe should be spending their money elsewhere?
2: I think that's a really good question there's a couple of uh, thoughts i have on that which is one as agencies and marketers we complain that market power is too centralized and so yes we should be diversifying our spend more broadly behind beyond just you know one or two players i think the other big lesson is you know we are in a like this is going to be a year of antitrust action we are in a period of regulations like this, which are going to force the hand of the platforms to react in one way or another, which might result in calls for advertisers to boycott. If I was a CMO, I wouldn't want to be cornered going, man, my marketing campaign, 60% of my performance comes from two partners. I have to turn one off. I'm not going to hit my KPIs for this month. We need to diversify and test against other emerging players and platforms, whether that's direct investments on news publishers, Whether that's the TikToks, Reddit's, Snapchats, Spotify's of the world. But you wouldn't no one in their right mind would allow half of their business to come from, you know, one customer. Why someone would allow half of their marketing spend or digital marketing spend to go to one or two players and all the risks that entails is beyond me some days.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, to that to that point then just from like a an advertising technology standpoint do we start to see or a need for some of maybe like those products that are on facebook that are maybe lower funnel conversion uh ad products be like introduced to like the broader ecosystem whether that's just like in small you know publisher networks that are kind of having these new ad formats available outside of like you know, video pre-roll or banner ads, um, thinking about how they can drive lower funnel conversions to kind of be more competitive with Facebook?
2: It's a, you know, that's the, the million-dollar moral dilemma in all of advertising, which is price and should we, you know, do we need just things on a cheaper price basis? And then we end up in brand safety nightmares because people find cheaper inventory on sketchy environments. I... I think we need to in, like, look at investing in platforms that actually enable publishers to be more competitive. You look at what uh, the Washington Post is doing with their Zeus platform for you know, news publishers and longer, t- sort of, I'll say the mid to longer tail environment, and the way they've created ad environments that enable you to pick up assets that you would use for Facebook and play them out on a publisher. I think that's what we we need to see more coordination across the industry to sort of go, if you create an ad somewhere, you can create it anywhere else and there's not barriers to being on another platform because you have to create yet another creative asset. And I think that the power of Facebook and the power of Google search is they're just so agile for adjusting and optimizing your creative in real time. Whereas the rest of the web, hasn't really caught up to that.
0: Well, I think that's going to wrap up this week's main conversation. I mean, Adam, do you have anything else to add?
1: Things seem pretty settled in Australia. I think the next question is just how this plays out in other parts of the world and I I think, you know, based on on our, what we've been saying, I think there's some clear opportunities to improve on the uh, situation in other in other places. It's not that the idea is is wrong, but I think the the rollout and execution, uh, the devils are in the details, uh, and or the devil is mm-hmm. in the details. There's only one, um, but
2: there could uh, be maybe, multiple. I don't know.
1: Um, but uh, <laughs> but I think that will be key to to figuring this out. Um, and I think I hope that governments. Elsewhere, are listening to the feedback uh, that is is you know coming on both sides of the the discussion uh, when they are looking to enact their own actions.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Joshua, thank you so much for joining us and coming back on floor nine. Uh, where can our listeners get in contact with you on the internet?
2: Uh, you can always find me on Twitter at jlocock, or you can visit my website joshualocock dot com.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you both. Thanks, mate. That is going to wrap up this week's episode of Floor 9. You can reach myself and Adam on Twitter. I am at T-I-P-P-I-E-R. Adam is at Adam J. Simon. And lastly, for anybody in the IPG Media Brands family we have set up a Teams channel uh, for Floor 9 that you can join to be more involved with the show. So come hang out with us, recommend episode suggestions, give us your feedback. Uh, We're super excited to engage and talk to all of our listeners. Um, So just look for Floor 9 in Teams and if you have any issues finding it, feel free to reach out to me directly. I'm happy to get everybody set up. So thank you everybody. We'll be back next week uh, and we'll talk soon.